You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. During the season I had on ESPN's Nick Wagner who covers the 49ers. Back then we discussed how that franchise turned it around and what the Redskins needed to do to do likewise. Well, it started with massive change and now here we are. So I brought Nick back on. We talked before the NFC Championship game and I want to discuss this more in depth. What lessons can we apply from the 49ers situation to the Redskins? The difference Nick Bosa has made and how that applies, of course, to Chase Young. A stadium in the middle of nowhere with dwindling attendance. Sound familiar? It should, and that's why I wanted to have Nick on. You will learn some lessons here. And then I close with my thoughts, an update on Reuben Foster and what it means. Nick and I discussed Foster, but at the time of the interview, we didn't know about his nerve damage. I also have a few other thoughts, including some influences on Ron Rivera. But first, my interview with ESPN's Nick Wagner. Now I'm joined by ESPN's Nick Wagner, covers the San Francisco 49ers. As of this taping, we don't know yet if they're going to the Super Bowl. So when you're listening to it, you'll already know that this conversation has nothing to do with that. So we're going to move forward anyways. And Nick, you are a return guest, so I'm guessing this is a big-time privilege for you. Yeah, well, anytime you get the initial invite from John Kime, it's a huge deal. But to get the, to get the ask back, it, 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 must, it really, it really uh, tugs at the heartstrings. I, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a big year for me in a lot of ways, but I think this one is, is probably going to set the bar really high for 2020. Amen, brother. Um, so what, the reason why I wanted to have Nick back on, because Nick and I had this conversation back when the 49ers played the Redskins, and it was about how he, Nick has covered two teams that have turned their things, their stuff around, the Rams and the 49ers. And at the time, we talked about how they did that. And now here they are, and now the Redskins are kind of doing some of what they did. So when you look back, what was the biggest thing that the, the 49ers did to put themselves in this spot? Well, to me, I think the big thing was they had to find some semblance of organizational stability and continuity. And that was the thing that they missed the most. It was they had, they had gone through, they had the, the Jim Harbaugh era, of course, and with Jim Harbaugh and Trent Baalke together, it was kind of an arranged marriage. We saw how it all played out. We've kind of seen now over the, over the years, uh, much to your chagrin, I'm sure, that that Jim Harbaugh kind of seems to wear out in places, and he, he kind of ran his his course uh, in San Francisco. And then when when Jim Harbaugh left, they they hung on to Trent Baalke, and they tried to continue to do the arranged marriage thing. And it was we're going to pair Trent Baalke with Jim Tom Sula because Tom Sula and Baalke have a relationship. Well, Tom Sula was in over his head as a head coach, a great position coach, as as everyone there in in DC knows. But that's about it. 
And then after one year, they go to Chip Kelly, and that fails. And I think Jed York finally realized, hey, we need to put people in here who know what they're doing and are also on the same page. And, and that was the biggest goal of that hiring process when they added Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch was we need two people who are going to be on the same page. And, yes, there can be some creative differences, but at the end of the day, they're going to get, get along and they're going to figure out how to make this thing work together. And the way they did it was actually very similar to what you're seeing in D.C. They went with the head coach first. They, Kyle Shanahan was their guy very early on in that process. They identified him. And even as he, was, as he was coaching the Falcons at the time, he was interviewing defensive coordinators like during the playoffs. I mean, it was, it was very well known this is what it's going to be. The other thing he was doing was figuring out who he wants to be his general manager. John, he had an aha moment with, with John Lynch, and he knew John Lynch from his time in, in Denver and the time that John Lynch spent with his dad. And so that was really the number one thing was finding those guys who could run the football side. Jed York could take a step back, let them do their thing, and trust that those guys were going to be on the same page, even if they occasionally had a disagreement, that they were going to move forward and there wasn't going to be any sort of lingering issues there. You know, it's funny because that's been a big issue here over the years was not being on that same page. It also seems like when, when I see Kyle and John Lynch talking, it's always there is always um, – a reference to the other as if they're mm -hmm. always kind of in accord with whatever they're doing. And obviously not everything's going to be hundred percent unanimous, but they're in accord sure. with this is how we have to be as a franchise and operate. Yeah. And I, and I think that they, I mean, even little things that maybe don't seem like a big deal, but actually do matter in, in terms of the details. Like for example, during the season, the 49ers want to have they, – they want Kyle Shanahan to be the voice of the team because he's the guy who's coaching the team, he's around the team all the time, all those types of things. And then that allows John Lynch to handle some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, other things that might be going on in the building, whatever it is. And then when the offseason comes around, those roles kind of reverse a little bit. You know, John Lynch becomes the guy who's out front a little bit more, speaking to the media more regularly, and Kyle Shanahan can deal with some of the other backside details – personnel-wise and things like that in the offseason. So they really have this kind of uh, – they have a really good chemistry anyway that they clearly are good friends and they get along well and all of that. But I also think that they came in with an understanding of what everyone's role was going to be. They defined it very clearly early on, and they followed through on that. And I think that it, is, it, it certainly has helped lead to some of the success that they've had just beyond the X's and O's and, and starting to get some really good players in here as well. And because you were there too, what was the – what what was the next biggest step after that? Because just getting that's gonna that's gonna be a big deal. But in terms of, because I'm, I'm trying to look at things that you know a Redskins fan can say, okay, what's the next step after getting those guys in place? Was it was it were there some key veterans that they brought on board? I know Richard Sherman's there, obviously, but what what were some yeah. of the other steps that they did to kind of change more of that culture and get it where they wanted it and needed it? Well, the interesting thing is, is if you're looking at any organization, you say the three most important jobs are what? The head coach, the general manager, and the quarterback, right? right. And so, so they didn't have the quarterback, but they had a plan for the quarterback when they got here. And so they actually didn't address it right away. If people remember, you know, Brian Hoyer was the guy that they signed to be the quarterback the first year they, they were here. And it was really just to be a bridge guy. There was never any intent to have him be the long-term answer. Another name that's going to sound very familiar to everyone there, everyone listening, is Kirk Cousins. That was the initial plan was they're going to pursue Kirk Cousins after their first year here together. He was going to be a free agent. They were hopeful that they could get him. In the meantime, they started – they added some of those veterans that you're talking about. And it was really more about 
you know, getting culture and, and building the culture than it was about guys coming in and making an instant impact. Pierre Garcon, yet another name that, that's going to ring out there in D.C., was, was one of those guys. Uh, Kyle Juszczyk, who's been a very good player and easily their best free agent signing from that first group that they brought in. Uh, was another one. Just guys like that who could kind of help set the tone, start developing the things that they wanted to develop from a culture standpoint. And then, of course, before they got to the Kirk Cousins opportunity, the Jimmy Garoppolo thing popped up. They saw a chance to, to take a swing at a quarterback without having to pay, at least in the immediate there, uh, the, the money that, that Kirk Cousins was going to get. And they, they gave up a draft pick, a second-round draft pick to the Patriots to get him. And I think that really kind of changed – the whole perspective on things just in the sense that they they knew they were going to have to dedicate a lot of money to a quarterback at some point. They ended up doing it with Garoppolo, of course, after just the five starts. But I think they also felt like they they didn't necessarily know what they had with Garoppolo, but I think they, they also believed they had a little bit higher ceiling with him than they might have with Cousins. And when they already got a chance to see what it looked like with him in place, it helped them put the other pieces of the puzzle around him moving forward a little bit different than it would have been if you had just grabbed Cousins as a free agent and then said, okay, now what do we do after this? The other thing, too, when I'm looking at their roster, and this is where the other comparison to me to the Redskins would be, is their defense. And obviously the Niners are ahead of them defensively because they're just better. But the building blocks seem to be in place, yep. were they, when this group took over? At least yeah. partially. Yeah, no question. I mean, and, and it, it's, it's, I think it was the old Bill Parcells thing, the, the, the most important people on a football field are the quarterback and the people who knock the quarterback down. And right. uh, that, that's certainly a philosophy that, that John and Kyle believe in strongly here. And, and you saw them double down on that because Trent Baalke, for all his foibles and faults in, in his time here, he had a couple of good picks there towards the end, especially DeForest Buckner, who, was, who I think was easily probably the best player on the team uh, when, when Kyle and John arrived, certainly on the defensive side of the ball. And then Eric Armstead, who was a guy who had showed a lot of promise. He was a first-round pick the year before Buckner, uh, but hadn't really had a chance to live up to it because of injuries and some other things that, that kind of derailed him. But when they got here, the Niners, they didn't say, Kyle and John didn't say, this is enough. This is it. We're going to keep doubling down on this. And so they used, a, they used a very high draft pick on Solomon Thomas, which hasn't necessarily panned out. He's a serviceable player, but probably not much more than that. But they knew going into this past offseason, the biggest thing they needed was to really supercharge their pass rush, particularly on the edges. They felt really good with the two big guys from Oregon and Buckner and Armstead, but they needed that speed edge rush, and they needed – to get to, to multiply, not just get one guy, but get two. So what they do, they traded a second round pick again. This time it was for D Ford. He became their instantly their, their speed rusher off the edge. Then they get Nick Bosa with the number two pick, which a lot of people would say, you know, they kind of lucked into that because that was a team that was four and 12 in 2018. That was better than four and 12, but they lost their quarterback. And so that was a team that probably was eight and eight. If Jimmy Garoppolo had stayed healthy in 2018, Instead, they're kind of playing with house money in some sense. And while they would have preferred in some ways that Garoppolo would have got those reps and got those chances to develop, well, they got a nice consolation prize instead because they got Nick Bosa. And so now you have those two edge rushers in, in Ford and Bosa who just complement each other so well with the speed of Ford and then the technique and the power of Bosa. It's like a muscle car and a Ferrari as it's been, uh, is the analogy that's been drawn inside that locker room. And, and if you turn on the tape, it, it shows why. 
Uh, and that was the thing that they really, they doubled down on it. And it, it really has become the backbone of the entire team. Everything they do in a lot of ways spins off of what that defensive line is capable of doing from week to week. And obviously the parallel with that one is Chase Young's going to be sitting there at number two, most, mm-hmm. almost, almost most likely for the Redskins. And when you look back at last year, because, you know, you'd read stories leading up to it. We'd talk about this and we have to do our NFL Nation mock draft. I know you had them there, but was there ever talk about, because again, this is going to be the discussion for the Redskins fans in the offseason. Should you take Chase Young or do you, you know, should you trade back? You get, you can get a haul. You can, you know, maybe get a big, uh, big return on that pick and get some, you know, because he needs so much and all that. What was it? What were the discussions like with, with that with Bosa? Was there a talk about maybe trading that pick? Before you answer, one difference is with two quarterbacks in this draft who could go one two, depending on how Tua's health checks out, it may make that more of a possibility than last year. But what do you remember about that discussion last year for the for the Niners? Yeah, and it's it's it would be a twenty twenty hindsight to go back and say I think that if there had been another quarterback there that maybe they would have considered the move down more. But I think it really was just a situation where everything fell into their laps just perfectly in some sense because in most years Nick Bosa was going to be the number one pick in the draft, and quite frankly, he probably still would have been the number one pick in the draft had it been any other team except the Arizona Cardinals right. and with right. Cliff Kingsbury as the head coach, right? Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't just because it was the Cardinals. It was because it was the Cardinals now coached by Cliff Kingsbury that are taking Kyler Murray. And so it felt in such a way that it was perfect for them, and Bosa was exactly what they needed. He was that last piece that could kind of put that defense over the top. They believed in him very, very strongly. And they were, frankly, just kind of holding their breath that he was going to fall to them. I don't know that there's a scenario that they would have traded that pick barring just some absolutely ridiculous offer. And I don't think there was ever really much consideration or or many offers that were given to that end that would have made them consider it. So I think the only real consideration they had was I know they liked Quinn and Williams from Alabama, uh, the defensive tackle, but they, they obviously felt really good about what they have inside already. I don't, I don't really think there was too much of a discussion on whether to take both or not. I think he was their guy, and they knew what they, knew what they were getting pretty quickly. And, 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 and again, to, to, to bring it home and, and kind of relate it back to, to what Redskins fans are thinking about right now is if you're looking at the draft and you're saying, what are the positions that you need difference makers at the most? Quarterback and the guys who knock quarterbacks down. And it can be very, very difficult to find those guys because a lot of those guys hit in the early rounds. If you look at that 2011 draft, there are so many pass rushers in that draft that turned out really good, but there's also been busts over the years too uh, that go really high. And so if you've got a guy who you feel like is a blue chip prospect and you think he is going to be potentially even a Hall of Fame type of talent, uh, passing on him, particularly at that position, other than quarterback, I think is, is a dangerous move. And I, and I would agree with that. To me, it's like if the guy's sitting there, you think he's an elite talent, then you take him and you because you need elite players to win. And it also points to that. They went out and got D Ford. They did have some inside guy, you know, some other guys, Armstead, who, you know, who had provided a pass rush. Whereas the Redskins they have Montez Sweat, they have Ryan Kerrigan, and they have inside guys. But again, the the night, you know, they didn't also blink an eye, bat an eye, because they, I think they had taken three defensive players out of four years and still went after Bosa in that year. And I know some of those weren't their guys, but the point yeah. is they did go defensive heavy, and that certainly has seemed to key a lot of the, that and the run game has keyed their resurgence. 
No question. And, and you know, if, if, if you'd asked me in August or July, what's the biggest question facing the 49ers going into the 2019 season, the answer would have been the secondary. I wrote about it many times. I wasn't the only one. But other than Richard Sherman, who was still coming back, you know, he was, he was going to be a year removed from that Achilles injury and played pretty well in 2018, not quite to his normal level. Uh, but he was the one guy you felt pretty good about. But they had questions at, 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 the other two, at the two safety spots, certainly at the other corner spot. They felt pretty good about their nickel, but everything came together when they got that pass rush because it made everybody's life so much more difficult or so much easier, I should say, on the back end. And there were so many times this year where you would see the pass rush was getting home so quickly. Quarterbacks were just firing the ball kind of aimlessly. And the Niners, who last year, this is the craziest stat, people may forget about it, in 2018, they set a league record for futility in takeaways. I think they had seven takeaways the yeah. entire season and only one interception. They passed those numbers within like three weeks this year, and a lot of it was interceptions, but a lot of that was coming because the pass rush was getting home and was forcing quarterbacks to get rid of the ball quicker than they wanted. So it really is one of those things where everything, you know, you talk about it being a passing league, and some teams maybe now want to they want to spend more resources on their secondary as opposed to the defensive line, but if you really bolster and you supercharge your pass rush to that point, there is a trickle-down effect that is undeniable, and I think the Niners are a prime example of that. Yeah, and like I said, that's, that's where, like I said, it's going to be a big discussion. It's going to be a discussion, whether it's a big one or not. I mean, I'm all for taking that guy. And the other guy I want to ask you about, too, because you've got experience with him, um, covering him is Reuben Foster. And haven't seen him play for the Redskins yet despite he's been here he will have been here for 18 months or so um soon right since November or whatever from 2018 gonna go the Redskins are going to a 43 and I'm curious what you know covering him there where did the mm-hmm. Niners feel that he worked best and why yeah I think initially when they drafted him having him as the Mike backer was kind of the plan uh, I think after having him around a little bit, you know, they at the time, they, they still had Navarro Bowman. And so they were trying to figure out, you know, where does he plug in? What's the best thing to do here? So they, they plugged him at, at weak side. And, and I think that ultimately they felt like that was the position where he could best do the thing he does best, which is, you know, sideline to sideline, run and chase type of linebacker who's not afraid to come up in run support as well. And um, as they as that went on, you know, they released Navarro Bowman, and that was Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch's first year together here. They released Navarro Bowman about midway through that season, and then it was, okay, well, now Foster becomes your middle backer, and, um, you know, he dealt with some injuries and things like that as that year wore on. And uh, in the offseason, they, then they drafted Fred Warner, who's turned into a really, really good middle linebacker, maybe one of the most underrated players in the league. I think people are starting to learn. He's really but, good. Yeah, he's very good, and he does he does so many things. I like to I call him the onboard computer uh, for for their defense. If the if the D line is the engine, he's the onboard computer because he's doing everything pre snap, the adjustments. Uh, you know, when the when guys go in motion, he's pointing things out. He does all those things. He's obviously the guy with the green dot who you know gives the plays and all that stuff. But Robert Sala has pretty much given him carte blanche to do whatever he feels needs to be done if he sees something pre snap and things like that. And quite frankly, that those were things that I don't think they believed Reuben Foster could do, at least not things he could do 
that would also allow him to continue to play at the speed that he would normally play at. And what I mean by that is, is I don't, I think that if he had to do too much thinking, he was one of those guys where it could slow him down, which is not what you want because that's not the kind of, he's the kind of player that his speed and ability his athleticism are, are things that are certainly weapons for him. But uh, I, I think ultimately weak side linebacker is probably the spot where he's best served to do the things that he does best. And if, if you're talking about a guy like Ron Rivera, who's been around for so long, and he he understands what's what's the best for his guys, put them in positions to succeed. I would think that's probably what he would end up doing there as well. Just a couple more here, Nick. Um, how important has Richard Sherman been? And again, I'm again I'm looking at this because like, do do they did they feel like they had to go out and get that one more veteran to come in and be a voice to help on that defense? Because it does seem like. There was a lot of young talent. How important was having an, a veteran, older voice like Sherman for them? He's been huge, John. And, and it's, it's funny because, you know, it, it does get lost sometimes because Sherman is one of those guys who we all know likes to, uh, you know, he, he motivates himself by throwing fuel on his own fire. And he, <laughs> he you know, he, 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 he will invent, he admits to this, he will invent things in his head that are slights or perceptions of him that may not even be all that real or, or certainly things that aren't that important, but they're things that keep him motivated. He does that for the team though, too. And one thing I noticed, I wrote a story about him just uh, before the, before the Vikings game, the first, the first playoff game for the Niners. And the story was basically that Rod, Richard Sherman is the straw that stirs the 49ers drink. And he's the guy who is constantly hyping up his teammates, pumping them up, but also keeping them grounded, which is, is a fine line to walk. But it's really interesting because you can't sit through a Richard Sherman press conference and without hearing at least the names of about a half dozen of his defensive teammates. And it's him, you know, you got to give credit to Jaquaski Tart because he did this, that, and the other thing. Or you got to give credit to Fred Warner. He did this that you nobody saw, but it was a huge factor for us. And those are the types of things where – he understands his platform because he's a superstar player in this league who's probably going to be a Hall of Famer. He's, he's a very good player still, which you know, also kind of seems to get lost in, in, the, in the shuffle with all that stuff. But he has brought an element here of being the guy who people rely on when they, when they need something and when they, when they need some guidance. And he told me a funny story. I was talking to him. I don't think he would mind me sharing this. I was just talking to him kind of off to the – the side a couple weeks ago before the, their first playoff game and I asked him like do you ever have to like you know slap some of these young guys around and get them in you know get them to fall in line and he said you know what's funny is is guys will come up to me and they'll say you know I was thinking about doing this like going out to party or doing this last night you know the day before practice or whatever and then I thought of you and I said I'm not going to do that and so so guys are like actively scared of disappointing Richard Sherman which I think is uh it, it speaks to kind of the level of um, trust and, and, you know, leadership that he's brought to the locker room beyond just being a really good football player. You know, and, and it's, but that's why I say there's so many parallels that I think the Redskins could use a guy like that. The last thing, Nick, too, what was it like, the culture, when you got there and when and how long do you think it took to really change it? I mean, the, the culture was not good. I mean, they were in a bad place. And, and look, my first year covering the 49ers was Chip Kelly's year here. That was 2016. And I, I felt bad for Chip in some sense because he was just in a no-win. There was, there was very little chance he was going to win here. There was, the roster was depleted. Uh, the, he, and, he and Trent Baalke were clearly not on the same page. 
they had, you know, they had, they were on their third coach in as many years. Uh, and so things were, things were really kind of falling apart. And, you know, Joe Staley is a good example. He's, he's been kind of one of the bedrocks of this franchise for a long time. And he reached a point where he almost retired uh, after Chip Kelly got fired because he didn't know what the direction of the organization was going to be. Uh, and it was pretty bad. When they hired Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, and you and I talked, and you can vouch for me on this, you and I talked at the time, I think I called you right after we knew it was going to be Kyle, just to kind of pick your brain about, you know, what you knew about him and all that kind of stuff. I got a sense, unlike any sense I had had in my 16 years covering the league, and as you know, I've covered some really bad teams. I covered a lot of bad teams with the Rams. You, I knew instantly that, that, that Kyle Shanahan was going to be the kind of guy who, from an X's and O's standpoint, was going to be a massive upgrade over what they'd had previously. But the question was, how is he, what, you know, what kind of culture is he going to build? And it was evident really quick, John. I mean, really, really quick what he was trying to do. And, you know, the, he, he, and, he and John Lynch made it a point to, let's embrace our history. Let's bring back Jerry Rice and Steve Young and Joe Montana and open the doors to all the alumni. And you started seeing those guys come around. Within two weeks, Steve Young and Jerry Rice were speaking to the team in, in the first training camp under Shanahan. And then just some of the stuff that they do uh, in terms of, like, keeping things loose, making sure they have fun. Kyle Shanahan, still a young guy. I mean, a lot of those players really relate to him on a number of levels. I mean, Emmanuel Sanders, when he got here in a trade midseason, the first thing he mentioned was, how could you not love Kyle Shanahan? The guy wears Yeezys, you know, like, like that, like, just like stuff like that, that, that resonates. And it's not fake. It's just too, you know, Kyle Shanahan likes hip hop. Kyle Shanahan likes Yeezys. You know, th those are things that players can relate to that help them. But then the key is when they go into the meeting room on an X's and O's level, he's a level above everybody else. And every player in that room knows that if they just do what they're told, he's going to put them in a position to have success. And if you're in a position to have success and then you have it, guess what happens? You get paid and, and, and you probably win on top of it. So I, I think it was very quick, uh, the culture change that, that Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch brought here. And I think now you're kind of seeing it all come home to roost now that they've been able to improve the roster to the point where they can compete. Yeah, and just for Redskins fans listening, this is not about Kyle Shanahan leaving the Redskins. They made this mistake. It's about the lessons the, for, the Redskins can learn from the 49ers from that, what they did out there. Because, Nick, as you might know, there are a lot, that, that stuff gets brought up a lot. And I don't blame <laughs> Redskins fans don't want to hear that. But it's, yeah, I, I've been more curious about how they did things and the things that can be lessons that can be applied here. And then, the, you know, because, I mean, just like, just like here, for a couple of years there, people weren't going to those games out there. And, you know, mm -hmm. it just when, I remember when we went out there a couple of years ago, it was like, it was not a full, it wasn't close to a full stadium. It was an iconic franchise that had fallen. No, no question. And I think, you know, you and I talked about this when I was out there. Well, I guess that was October, uh, that, that rainy weekend in October, uh, when we did this podcast the previous time. And you and I talked about what are some of the, 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 the traits that have to be fixed for bad organizations to turn things around or bad teams to turn, turn things around. And one of them was, you know, it always starts at the top, right? It starts at the top down. And I think that a lot of times it takes some introspection from the ownership level, uh, maybe down to the other level. I, you and I talked about that. I know that the, the Redskins fans, and rightfully so, were – were disappointed with the Bruce Allen situation. And yep. clearly they, you know, at the time it didn't seem like that was going to be something that changed, but at yep. least it did. So it maybe it does give you some hope that maybe there's some, some revised thinking going on at the highest levels because everything starts at the top. And that's why, you know, owners, uh, Jed York famously said here uh, after he fired Chip Kelly, you know, 
owners don't get fired. <laughs> and, and that's true. But what an owner can do is can take a deep look at himself and, and try to understand what he's doing that's not working, how he can help put the team in position to succeed. And, and to credit Jed York in this case, he did that. He realized that he needed a coach and a general manager who were going to be on the same page, who could lead the football operation with an iron fist, but also in a way that gives them an opportunity to get back to the, to the ways they had success. And, and if that happens, then it can all trickle down and it can turn around. And the funny thing too, John, is, is I always hear people say about the 49ers that they can't believe this. One-year turnaround is unbelievable. Keep in mind, this, is not a, this has not been a one-year turnaround. Right, this, has right. been, this has been years in the making. Even under Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, it didn't happen in one year. It took, the, it took until year three, which I think ultimately was probably the year they targeted initially anyway. Uh, they got a couple of boosts along the way. Certainly having the number two pick and getting Nick Bosa was one of those things. But um, it, it does take a little bit of patience, and I know that can be frustrating. But uh, it also, I think probably for long-suffering fans, uh, makes it a little sweeter on the other end if, if you come out on the right side of it. Yeah, and I think these guys are in a position for it. And I wouldn't say a, a turnaround where they're in the FC championship game, but a turnaround where you can say, you know, is, it, is 500 attainable? Well, I think it probably is because you're only, you know, you're talking, you know, what, four games or, you know, just a few games. But, you know, we'll see. So long way to go. But I did want – I appreciate you sharing the insight because I do think there are parallels to this organization, what they're trying to do, and what the Niners have done, and their histories as a franchise is, are, are, are comparable. So I think that's why I want to have you on. Nick, thanks a lot. And at this, as, as of right now, you can, you're either going to be starting a – when this is airing, you're either starting your offseason or getting ready for the Super Bowl. So either way, enjoy. Yeah, I'll try to do that. And I will look forward to uh, you know, the, the coveted invite number three from the John Kine podcast. I don't, I don't know if that sets me up don't for a Hall of Fame invite or not, but I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll anxiously uh, await that. We'll see how the fans react to this one first. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, man. After this break, I'll be back with my thoughts, including Ron Rivera and Andy Reid and why that connection matters and what can the Redskins learn from these Super Bowl teams. Okay, now it's time for my thoughts. So let's get to it. Let's start with Reuben Foster. On Sunday, the NFL Network reported that Foster had sustained nerve damage in his left foot after tearing multiple ligaments in his left knee last spring. As you might recall, he tore his ACL, LCL, and MCL on the first day of OTA work last May. Foster's agent told the NFL Network that he's getting feeling back in his toes, the underside of his foot, and the side of his foot. That left him optimistic about an eventual return for Foster, although there was no timetable on this. His agent told the network that Foster couldn't feel his toes for the last few months. I was, I was asked a few times, of course, on social media about this, and I think the assumption was that many knew about this, and I can tell you they did not. I did not. I don't think any other reporters knew, but that's just my sense and, and not anything factual. Um, I will say we saw him a handful of times, and Foster didn't seem to have any issues walking, so there was no reason to think that there was some major issue with his foot. And I'm not saying there wasn't. I'm just saying that's why it wasn't really detectable just from our point of view. I did request interviews with him on a handful of occasions. All were obviously denied. Um, there were so many issues going on with the Redskins this season that Reuben Foster's future and his situation was not exactly on the radar. Um, I did 
talked to someone recently about him. They were optimistic about what they saw from him. They liked the fact that Ryan Anderson was still strongly with him and that he was a key figure to getting Foster, kind of keeping him on the right path. I did ask someone from the team uh, you know, about all this nerve damage. They didn't even know about it. So I don't know how widespread the knowledge was within the building. And I'm sure there were a lot. Of, there were definitely people who knew because they, there was their jobs to know. But the point is not everyone there knew the severity of the situation. Also, those who did know, well, there was no way they're going to let that information leak out. You could get in really big trouble because of HIPAA laws. And then I think this is, so, this is such a sensitive situation that you, you really have to be careful. And, and that, you know, they, the Redskins, I will say, teams are really good at, pro, at protecting information when they really want to and when there's a united front. It's that united front that always has gotten them in the past. The reason stuff has leaked out in the past is because there wasn't a united front. In this case, there clearly was. Um, so, but again, you know, there's such, it's such a sensitive topic here. And regardless, regardless, the Redskins will prepare as if they won't have Foster. That's the only way they can go. Just like last offseason, they had to prepare as if they would never have Alex Smith again. Um, so look for them to pursue someone this offseason to fill that inside linebacker's role, and whether it's through free agency or the draft. And, and really, I think, well, I'll get to this in a minute on Foster, but one name to watch here is A.J. Klein. He was a backup to Luke Keekley in Carolina and nearly signed here a couple years ago before joining New, the uh, New Orleans Saints. Technically, he has one year left in his deal, but my understanding is that it's more or less a phantom year, so he's probably he's going to end up being free. He could always stay with New Orleans. I have no clue if the Redskins are even interested in him. This is this is my own piecing things together and not anything I'm getting from them by any means. But he could fill what they need, and again, he has a history with Rivera. Um, I, he doesn't have it with Jack Del Rio, but he does have it with Rivera. I'm not sure what I'm not sure where they would have even played Foster, and that's kind of was part of the discussion with Nick that I had. Rivera, my understanding, wants his middle linebackers to call signals and handle those duties. As Nick Wagner mentioned, that's not exactly a strength of Foster's or hasn't been in the past. They want him to play. If you want a guy like that to play fast, you kind of have to make sure that you're putting him in position to do so. Another thought, when Jack Del Rio was the coach of the Raiders, he started rookie fifth-round pick Markel Lee in 2017. The point is he wasn't afraid to put a rookie in there, so you could see someone maybe coming from out of the draft who could fill those roles, or maybe they put Cole Holcomb there. I think they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do. Getting back to Foster, I don't know what the future holds for him, but he was always a guy I would be afraid to count on just because of all the multiple things he has going on, whether it's on the field or off. As they say, availability is the best ability, and he just hasn't been available for a multitude of reasons. At what? But at this point, when you're talking about nerve damage, all you really want to do is regain the ability to have a normal life. I look at Kaishan Jarrett. He still doesn't have that with his right arm from the nerve damage that he suffered in two, at the end of the 2015 season. Jarrett has carved out a good life for himself. I think it's because of his mindset, etc., etc. And we don't know where this is going to go with Foster. I know there's a long way to go, so we'll have to stay tuned. Number two, Andy Reid. No, he does not coach the Redskins, but he does have an impact on them because of his relationship with Ron Rivera. Rivera was a linebacker's coach under Reed from 1999 to 2003 and remains close to him. Considering Reed is in his second act as a head coach and that the two have a strong relationship, 
It would make a lot of sense if Rivera had reached out to him after being fired from Carolina. Talking to guys like Reed or even Joe Gibbs, among others, will shape how Rivera wants his second coaching stint to go. Any moves he makes will be framed under this advice from removing the ping pong table to any eventual player moves. The time to do any moves like this is in the beginning. Once you start going down a road, you can't kind of then start taking things away. You take them away early and you let it build up back up. I think, you know, so I think that's just a guess that that's how this is going to go. And I think it's why Rivera was vocal about what he wanted to see in terms of approach and accountability from all his players. There are definitely some in the locker room who had better adhere or they will be gone. Rivera is intent on changing the culture in there, and that means being accountable, showing up on time for things, etc., etc. Um, Reed had a more successful first run in Philly than Rivera had in Carolina. In fact, Reed only had three losing seasons out of 14 years with the Eagles. Rivera had three winning seasons in eight full-time years with the Panthers. Um, I do think, as I've said a number of times, Rivera is a good coach and that was a good hire. In fact, those are the only losing seasons that Reed has had. If the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, he should be a Hall of Fame lock. Rivera isn't in that category as of now. But what I like is how it appears that Rivera has talked to many about what he must do to improve or how he can have a successful stint in his second go-round. This matters to him, and I do believe he's a grinder. The Redskins have needed a coach like that for a while. It leads to greater attention to detail, greater urgency, and also, I think, more discipline. I don't know if he's going to succeed, but that approach is the right one, and it's a good start. Seeking information from guys like Reed or Joe Gibbs is very wise. Reed is someone who constantly tries to update himself and seeks information from all over the place. Guys like that succeed. He is a good model for Rivera to emulate. Number three, it's interesting looking at the Super Bowl teams and trying to deduce what wins in the NFL. I kind of get tired of the you have to run the ball to win types who only look at stats to back up the notion why you must run all the time. And that's, there's, that's been prevalent all over Twitter the last couple weeks because of the Ravens, because of the Niners, and because of the, the Titans. And I kind of get tired of the pass-heavy mindset as well. Why? Well, because the Chiefs and 49ers show you one thing. It's about having a plan and an identity and using the talent you do have. The 49ers do not have a dynamic passing game like, like the Chiefs do, but they have a run game that scares the hell out of teams. They use the stretch zone and cut back runs to kill defenses. There is a threat of the pass, whether by alignment or situation, that helps too. It's always been an excellent run scheme, and it's why you can take backs that others have passed on and make it work. They use a fullback. Their tight end, George Kittle, is a terrific blocker, and their receivers block their butts off. It leads to huge runs. Kyle Shanahan also forces teams to defend the entire width of the field in the run game. That also matters. That's where the unpredictability comes in. I, that's why I say I don't view them as ultra-predictable. Yes, we'll know they're going to run, but it's about the design and when and how it's run. Are they, which way are they going to run? That's where the, when you talk about balance, it's about how you call your plays. It's not just about are you running or passing. It's about how you're doing both. If you just run the same pass all the time, it doesn't mean you're being balanced. It just means you pass then. I think the same is true in the run game. The Redskins ran the ball last season, but it was predictable. It didn't lead to anything other than better rushing numbers. Again, it's not as simple as saying you have to run more. No, you have to run better. How do you do that? Watch the 49ers. This season, the 49ers averaged an NFL best 6.13 yards per carry on first down runs in the opening half. 
That's according to ESPN stats and information, and that's unreal. Of course you stick with that, and I use, you stick with the run, I mean. And I use those numbers because it's not just about running out the clock and compiling stats in the second half because you're winning. It's about the effectiveness early and why you want to stick with something. That's what the 49ers have done, and that's good coaching. Meanwhile, the Chiefs have a lot of talent to skill positions and a quarterback who's fantastic. So they have gone in that direction. Both work. The lesson, make it work with what and who you have. Both of these teams do. Also, both teams have excellent offensive lines. Patrick Mahomes can extend plays, but he can also get to his second and third options while in the pocket before looking to move. The 49ers' offensive line opens holes, man. They just open holes. The Redskins are damn close to having a terrific defensive line, and adding Chase Young would make it complete. But they need to get the offensive line right, and a lot of that starts with what they did, what they do with Trent Williams, Eric Flowers, and Brennan Sheriff. I don't see all three leaving, but I don't have any new information on any of them. I like Wes Martin in case one of the guards leave, and at this point, I don't know if they will. I think they understand if they want to run a power running game, which I think they do, then you're going to want to keep both those guards some way. You can tag Sheriff. I don't know how expensive Flowers is going to be. I think that will be something it will be interesting to see. Um, So they might be able to keep them both. I also think that Martin could end up competing at center with Chase Roulier um, or simply being a solid backup for another year, year or two. And that would be a good thing for the Redskins because they haven't had good interior line depth. That's what makes teams good because, as we've seen, you're always going to need to tap into that depth along the front. The takeaway from both these teams in the Super Bowl is that you need to have a strong foundation, and both do. The Redskins need more weapons on offense, and we'll get into more of that later this offseason. But a quick turnaround relies on them getting it right up front first. It also comes back to this, going with what works for you and not just following whatever is the narrative of the day. There are many ways to win, but it starts with knowing who you are and who you want to be. Finally, and this follows what Nick and I discussed about turnarounds regarding the 49ers, but I saw that Al Galdi from the Team 980 discussed how the last four NFC champions champions won after basically a turnaround. They were all kind of surprise winners. The Falcons went from 4-12 and to 6-10 and to 8-8, eight and, eight, and then the NFC Championship. The Eagles went from two straight 7-9 seasons to their title, and the Rams had 10 straight losing seasons, followed by an 11-5 and 13-3 record and an NFC, NFC Championship. And then here come the 49ers. They won more games this year than the past three years combined, which I think is just an amazing stat. It just shows, though, it can be done. It takes more than just change, but in each case, that's what it stemmed from. Quarterback play has a lot to do with it, but it's also about an organizational approach. Um, You wouldn't make this leap to thinking the Redskins can get there next year, but they did take the first step toward it possibly happening. I never once felt in the last six years that it would happen without a lot of good fortune. It just wasn't a good organization. Is it right now? We'll see. There's a long way to go here, folks. We're only talking, we're only not even a month into this, but it's in better shape, and that's what needed to take place first. That's it for this week. Thanks to my guy out in San Francisco, Nick Wagner, for coming on, and thank you, as always, for listening. I'm well aware there is no show without listeners. I'll talk to you soon.